What a great song. Uh, in our trials, in our difficulties, the love of God. What a comfort that is to us. We are back in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10. We're in a new chapter. Let's celebrate. Uh, <laughs> Luke chapter 10. And I'd like to read from verse 1 to 16. So I hope to make some good progress this morning, but no ultimate promises. <laughs> uh, so verses 1 to 16, follow along as I read. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is the word of the living God. When I was in seminary, we had a class uh, that we got to take called Evangelism and Apologetics. And it was a very good class. We had to study and read about uh, how to share the gospel, how to rightly do apologetics, defense of the faith. And, uh, but one of the assignments that was probably the most challenging and fearful was that we had to go out uh, into Los Angeles with another student in our class and share the gospel door to door. And so... Um, Thankfully, we had to go with someone else, and so I went uh, on one occasion. We had to do this more than once. On one occasion, I went with my friend Dave, who's now a pastor in Virginia, and, um, and we went to uh, Burbank, California, uh, where all the movies are filmed, or a lot of them are. Uh, and, and we went door-to-door -door in a neighborhood, spent some hours there, and knocked on doors, shared Christ, 
Um, maybe you've had someone come to your door, but they were a cult, you know, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, but we were bringing the true gospel. And um, it was fascinating, the different kinds of people and responses we got. Uh, in addition to that, we I went another time with my friend Chance, who's a pastor in Texas, and, and we went to North Hollywood. And we walked around neighborhoods in North Hollywood and knocked on doors, and in, we found some parks to go to, and we talked to people in the parks. And uh, there's many stories, <laughs> needless to say. Um, I've had other opportunities to do open-air preaching um, and uh, many experiences there. Uh, very uh, shaping uh, in my life and helpful for me to articulate the gospel clearly, um, but a very formative time. I'm glad they had us do it. It was a great assignment and, um, and is good to do from time to time, at least for me. Um, not, not everyone has what we might call the gift of evangelism, uh, but everyone is commanded to evangelize. So we can't say, well, I don't have that gift. I, I don't need to share the gospel. No, we all have to share Christ with people. Um, but it's not so much um, the way you do it is secondary, whether you go door to door or open air preach. You don't have to do it those ways, but that you do it is primary. So whether it's just with family, friends, neighbors, acquaintances, you're looking for those opportunities to bring Christ into the conversation and specifically this person in relationship to Christ and the gospel. Um, but if you were to go out into, we might call it, you know, cold turkey evangelism, where you're just going up to people you don't even know and, and asking them, uh, trying to get into a conversation about Christ, I would recommend you do it with someone else uh, because it's challenging to do. Anything that's hard to do, it's good to have someone else with you to do it. And so it was always very encouraging to have the other one and uh, and so we would take turns, you know, okay, you lead the conversation, and then you lead it, and we go back and forth, and it was uh, encouragement to one another, and we could pray for one another. Well, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out uh, a group, a large group of disciples for, we might call, uh, their evangelism class practicum. This is their assignment. They've been with Jesus, they've heard teaching, they've been equipped, they've been trained, and now he's like, all right, guys, here's your assignment. I'm not going with you. You guys go two by two, pair up, and go out and share Christ. Uh, share me. <laughs> Tell them about the kingdom. And that's what they have to do. And he prepares them for what that's going to be like. And so that's what we see in this chapter. Uh, Jesus sends out this large group. And, you know, this passage here has special application, I think, for those in part-time or full-time ministry, so pastors or uh, missionaries, evangelists, and yet it has application for all believers because we're all supposed to bring Christ and the message of Christ to others through our words, through the relationships we build with other people. We want to be um, consciously aware of opportunities and be thinking and praying that God would give us opportunities to share the gospel with people around us that they might know Christ as well. So much application for us here, but you'll see how it does tend towards a specific application to those who may be set apart for a more full-time ministry. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it incredibly easy, or I would say like this, much easier to read a book about how to evangelize or how to pray than it is to actually go out and evangelize and pray. I mean, just give me another book. 
You know, I'm struggling this here, so I'm just going to read another book on prayer, and uh, another book on prayer, another book on evangelism, and, uh, and you convince yourself, I can convince myself that, yeah, you're doing it, but you're reading about it, and you're reading about other people, and that's good, and we need to do that. We need to be equipped. There, it's a both and, but uh, sometimes I just got to do it and just say, all right, now I just got to pray and, and, and do it myself, or I just need to go out and share the gospel and, and do it. So we see here Jesus is actually saying, all right, now you guys got to do it. You got to do it. And so he sends them out. Now, if you look at verses 1 to, really, verse 24, that's our unit. That's our section. Because verse 25 gets into the parable of the Good Samaritan. We'll look at it in a few weeks. But here, I want you to see kind of the logic of this section, how it works, okay? So verses 1, really, to verse 16, where we read, is our first major section. And it really describes the servants, we'll call it the servants of salvation, because this section is really about salvation going out, the message of salvation. So the servants of salvation are sent out to preach. He sends the 72 out. And, and really, you might break down verses 13 to 16, where Jesus kind of interjects there about the severity of judgment for those who reject. You might break that down into another section. But really, it is contained. It's, a, it's an appendix, really, to uh, what he's telling them about uh, their mission and those who reject. And he's just giving them more instruction. So that's a section there. Then you have verses 17 to 20. And uh, there you have, we might call it the sweetness of salvation for the saved. As Jesus says, they get, I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience. I have it. Uh, when you've, you're so fearful and scared to go share the gospel with someone and you pray and then you do and you actually share the gospel or some of the gospel and you're just pumped up. You're like, man. That was great. Even if they don't believe, you're just like, I got to share Christ. That was so cool. And that's what happens for the 70 or 72, you know. And, uh, and they get back and they're like pumped up. And, and Jesus says, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but that your names are written in the book of life. The sweetness of self, that's the primary thing to rejoice in. He's not saying, you know, don't be excited, but he's saying be more excited that you yourself have embraced this message, that God has saved you. And so there's the sweetness of salvation. And then verses 21 to 24 is about the sovereignty of God in salvation. And it is one of the most pointed and provocative passages about God's sovereignty and salvation that you may find in any other place in scripture. You can go read it and prove me wrong, but, uh, but we'll get there. But I just want you to notice how... Uh, perfect the scriptures are, that you have a passage that begins in the chapter with Jesus sending out his disciples to actually go and share the gospel, as well as pray for the success of the gospel and for more workers to be sent out. So prayer and evangelism are commanded. And then you have, at the end, the sovereignty of God and salvation. So I just want you to notice, even the structure here, these are not in conflict right? These are harmonious. We preach both of them. We preach that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation and who comes to faith and who's chosen for salvation and whom Christ has died for. But also we are commanded to pray and share the gospel. They're both true. And so we're going to see that, but not yet. We'll see it progressively in the next couple weeks. All right. So what we want to do is hopefully look at verses 1 to 16 this morning and I want you to see seven principles for servants of the gospel so that you might faithfully proclaim the message of the gospel. Seven principles for servants of the gospel so that you might faithfully proclaim the message of the gospel. First, I want you to see the sending of servants. The sending of servants in verse one. Verse one, look again there at verse one. After this, 
The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Luke is really the only one to record this account and uh, of the, the Lord sending these, this large group on a short-term mission trip. Um, now, there is a question, uh, a textual question, um, a very technical question about how many he, did he send. If you notice, if you have an ESV, it'll say 72. And then there's a footnote there, and you go to the bottom, it'll say some manuscripts say 70. And you say, what is it, 70 or 72? We, we are not going to address this issue. If you want to talk to me, if you're like super interested, come talk to me. It's a very difficult textual issue. Some manuscripts that we have say 70, some say 72. Let's just say, suffice it to say, Jesus sent more than 69 and less than 73. <laughs> That's what he did. And, uh, and there's other issues related to it, but I don't want to get stuck there um, and, and uh, get bogged down. So it's one of those two. Uh, okay. So the main point, though, is that he appoints and chooses these disciples. Notice the word appointed. It's used again in Acts 1, 24, Luke volume 2, uh, when they sought a replacement for Judas. Who, they wanted to know whom the Lord had chosen to replace Judas. So keep in mind that these are people specifically called to this work. We said already, everyone's called to the work of evangelism, but some are set apart for a more focused work in that area. And so Jesus directly appoints them. And as I was thinking about this and just bringing it into our current context, because there's some unique things in, in this section where he sends them out. It sounds similar to Luke chapter 9 where he sent the 12 out. And there's some unique things that we wouldn't see as like uh, things that we need to do today. Like you can only take, you know, one bag and one pair of sandals, right? Those are unique things. Even Jesus later will change some of that later in the end of the gospel uh, to allow them to take more. But uh, one of the things that it made me think about was how does Jesus call out people for ministry today? Okay, so we don't have Jesus physically present with us, and he literally called out and said, all right, you guys are going to go. I'm picking you guys to go out. How does he do that today? Uh, sometimes you'll hear a gospel preacher or, you know, someone in missions or something, and they'll say, like, oh, I was called, and uh, I was called into the ministry. It was overwhelming. I, I, was, I was called, and that's fine. It's good. Um, and I believe I, I was called into gospel ministry. But how do you know that you're actually called into gospel ministry? How does a person know that? And uh, I actually think we have help uh, in how we're to think about that in our context. And we, think we get that more in the epistles because the epistles give us more of what the normal life of the church should look like um, uh, in an ongoing way. In the book of Acts, you're kind of in a transitionary period. And you remember in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas uh, are set apart for gospel ministry to go out and do missionary work. Set up, the Holy Spirit set apart um, Barnabas and Saul. But here in 1 Timothy, you learn um, in the pastoral epistles, chapter 3, Paul really gives an excellent summary of what one should look for if they're called to this kind of ministry. And uh, in 1 Timothy 3, he says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, a word overseer is, this, is it's really synonymous with the concept of an elder or a pastor, and I think, really, we should be thinking about those who are missionaries. Um, 
I'm thinking more male missionaries who are going to be doing preaching and church planning, like that they should meet these qualifications as well. Um, they don't have a different qualification. So they should be elder qualified if they're going to be going out and spreading the message elsewhere. So it applies to both. But notice it starts with compulsion. It starts with a desire. Do you desire that? It's a good thing. Now, I think some people just start with compulsion and they stop there. They just say like, I want to do this, therefore I'm called. I must be called because I feel like I want to do it. And so therefore, that's God's call on my life. Now, I'm not saying that that's wrong because Paul says, if you have the desire, that's a good thing. But it doesn't stop there. There's more to it than that. So he says, verse two, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. So if you have the desire, now we start talking about character. You have the compulsion, you want to do it. Now we start to look at character. Do you have the character that God says you need to have? Above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So I like to, I've had guys say, like, I don't know, I'm trying to, I'm wrestling through whether I'm called into ministry. And I say, all right, well, let's walk through these. Do you, walk through this passage. Do you, verse one, do you have the compulsion? Do you want to do it? Are someone pushing you into this and you're like, oh, I guess I should, or do you want to do this? Okay, number one, check. Number two, do you have character? Proven character. Over time, maturity, not a recent convert. There's a track record, faithfulness. Okay, that's another thing to consider. And then I'd say competence, because he says you have to be able to teach, right? So Titus will say, Paul says in Titus, able to instruct in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. You got to know the Bible. You got to know the Bible well enough to where you can communicate it accurately, and people are helped by that. And so, okay, competence. And then we might say confirmation by a qualified local church. Because, you know, this is what, sometimes you, you uh, if you get these other things right, character and competence, it's not you yourself that gets to determine, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have the character, and I'm a really good teacher. You know, <laughs> listen to me, you know. Uh, no, uh, that, is, that is seen by others who know what to look for, right? So, you're looking for those who are really qualified leaders and mature Christians who would say to a person, hey, it seems like there's a gifting of teaching. I'm helped to understand the Bible better and love Christ more when you explain the Bible. Or uh, you can explain the gospel clearly and, and, and accurately. Or I've seen the character, of God, uh, uh, character developed in your life. So really, we're talking about the confirmation by the local church of someone and so I think that's a helpful way for us to think. Just put that in your back pocket, you know, as you're thinking about this. Um, and I think it's helpful for us to think, you know, Jesus is sending out these 70, and we think, how does God set apart people for ministry today? And I think that's a great place to go, is 1 Timothy chapter 3. So be wary of someone who tells you they are qualified, but it's not connected to a local church, or they've not been affirmed by elders who are themselves qualified, right? That's just a maybe helpful thing to consider. All right, rabbit trail over. Actually, that's just, I think, a, a valid application here as we pull it forward to our day. Now, a few more things to notice about verse one before we move on. Notice that Jesus was sending them to places where he was about to go and follow up. It's like Jesus is the king who sends a delegation out ahead of him to prepare the way for him. 
And this is a great picture of what evangelism is. Even now, we are preparing people for King Jesus. We are going ahead of Jesus before his return and saying, are you ready to meet the King of Kings? Are you rightly related to the King? Or are you in rebellion to him? Because you need to be righteous before him. And you can only be righteous before this king if you entrust yourself to him and repent of your sin. When you think about evangelism that way, as being sent by the king to represent the king and prepare people for the king, it makes evangelism a great privilege that you got picked out to say, go tell people and represent me. You're an ambassador. You know, an ambassador to another country from our country is a, is a respected position. And, and we become ambassadors for the ultimate ruler and sovereign of the universe, seeking to help people be prepared for his rule and reign on earth. I think it's a, another implication is here in this text. Notice that Jesus sends them to the places where he's going to go. We said that, but notice another implication in that. They're going to hear the same message and see the same miracles done again when Jesus gets there. And I just think this is helpful because it reminds us people sometimes, oftentimes need to hear the gospel more than one time before they repent before they turn to Christ. And so don't become discouraged if you share the gospel with someone and they're not uh, visually responding to that because sometimes it's more than once and many times that people hear the gospel over and over again. And so we just keep sharing. We just keep being faithful. Let us never tire of sharing the gospel because it takes time often. We may be a ser in a series of people who are sharing the gospel with this person before they embrace Christ. And of course, he sends out two, likely as evidence of two or three witnesses. That's an Old Testament concept. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, every fact shall be confirmed. And Jesus is about to condemn some of these cities for not responding to the message. But in addition, just the mutual support of ministry. And like we said, it's good to do ministry together. And this is why we need the church as well. Another added reason, because to live the Christian life, to do what we're called to do, we do it together. We come side by side. We help each other in the work. And so he sends them out two by two. So this is the sending of the servants, the sending of the servants. Secondly, notice the other principle, the supplication for servants, the supplication for servants. It's like a fancy word for prayer, okay? And it starts with an S. <laughs> so... <laughs> Look at verse 2. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He says, this, this harvest is plentiful. There's many out there to be saved, but the laborers are few. Those who are going to bring the message and so, in light of that, in light of the, the lack of laborers, you should pray fervently, earnestly, beggingly uh, to the Lord that he would raise up and send out more who will labor in the gospel field. I think there's an implication here that the, the servants will be successful by that phrase, the harvest is plentiful. There will be a plentiful harvest of believers that all the elect will come to hear the gospel and be brought to faith in Christ. And, and so there is a success, and yet there needs to be those who actually tell them first. How will they believe unless they hear the gospel preach to them? And, and how will they preach unless they are sent? And so here he calls them to pray 
that the gospel would get out. What a thought. I mean, if God knows whom he will save, and he's the one who must actually save them, do we really need to pray? Do we really need to get out and share the gospel? And the answer is absolutely yes. And so Jesus is saying, you need to go out there and tell them, and you need to pray that God raise up others to do it as well. And I think a part of the motivation for our prayers and uh, our proclamation is the success. We know God has those out there whom he's going to save. And so we pray in light of that. This is how they, this is what driven, has driven biblical missions. Acts 18, 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. I think the idea is, Paul, you need to go to this city. I got people who need to hear the gospel and be saved. I'm going to draw them to myself. But you got to go and tell them. I got many there. Got to go. And we see in the end, Revelation 7, 9, and this, after this I looked, John says, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's a great work before us. The workers are few. I once heard this illustration years ago, and it just nearly broke me, broke my heart. And uh, I imagine it's fairly accurate still, though it was a few years back. And it, it was this idea that if every Christian, every genuine believer in the world shared the gospel with every single person that they knew, and all of those people believed, then there would still be around two billion people who didn't hear the gospel in that gospel blitz. Can you imagine? That many people who don't even know a Christian, they're just disconnected. They, they don't know someone who could tell them the gospel in their relationship sphere. That's really the, at the heart of the definition of being unreached. I mean, that is just heartbreaking. But God will raise up those workers. He will move his people to pray that he would send out more and he will answer those prayers because those are prayers according to his will and he will send those workers to people who need to hear the gospel, whether they be here local or uh, in other places internationally and they will speak, they will be heard, God will draw those people to himself and there will be that great multitude. And so, in light of this great need, we are to pray earnestly. It is, this idea of, uh, is a desperate request of God, a begging God. And so, you know, this past week, I, I, I tried to apply the sermon. I, you know, I hope you know that. I did my own life first, and then I bring it to you. So if it hurts, just know it's been hurting me all week, you know. Uh, and so I'm just like, Lord, I don't pray enough for this. This is a direct, like, command to pray in the Bible for a specific thing. This just needs to be more in line with my regular prayers. And so I've just tried to add that more, um, especially this week, that the Lord would be doing that, raising up more workers for the harvest. Here's another application. What should you be praying? What kinds of things should you be praying? Paul actually helps us here in Colossians chapter four. This is a good little thing to jot down. Four principles for how to pray for gospel workers. And you can pray this for yourself too, you know. I like to pray this uh, when I pray through the section of my prayers for missionaries. 
uh, I like to use this, not always, of course, um, like change it up, stay fresh, but sometimes if I need something to fall back on, I go to Colossians 4, verses 2 to, f- two to 4. And in verse 2, I pray for consistency in sharing the gospel and in prayer. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so I pray for a consistency in their dependence and in their prayer. And then verse three, I pray for contacts, like people they can actually share the gospel with. Verse three, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. So he's saying, hey, I need, I need to meet people so I can share the gospel with them. Pray that God would open up opportunities for me to share Christ with others. So pray for contacts. I've been doing that more in my life. Lord, uh, I mean, most people I hang out with is you guys. So, <laughs> and, um, so uh, I'm happy to keep sharing the gospel too and encourage you with that. And I believe many of you are, know the Lord, so that's great. Uh, but I need to meet other people too who are outside of our church. And so I pray for contacts. Lord, help me meet people that I can share the gospel with who don't know you. Another thing to pray for is courage. Pray for courage when that opportunity comes. In the middle of verse three, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So he's in prison. There's a cost to this, but he wants to be able to declare Christ nevertheless. He needs courage to do that. And then finally, pray for clarity. Verse four, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And so, you should pray. Like, when that opportunity comes, pray that the gospel gets out there. You know, it's like, uh, you don't just talk about conservative politics and call that sharing the gospel, right? Uh, and uh, I've heard people kind of talk that way, and they, not here, but elsewhere, uh, where it's like, yeah, we, I talked about, you know, whatever, this issue, and I was just sharing the gospel with them. It's <laughs> like, the gospel of what? <laughs> we, okay, that's fine to have those conversations, but did you get the gospel out? Death, burial, resurrection, all right? That's what we need to be getting out. So, clarity. J.C. Rowell says this about prayer. Not all believers have money to give to missions. Very few have great intellectual gifts or extensive influence among men, but all believers can pray for the success of the gospel, and they ought to pray for it daily. It's totally free to pray. (laughs) You can pray all day, and God would use that prayer. William Carey's parting words to his sending church as he ventured off to India as he said, I will go into the pit, meaning India. I will go into the dark pit if you will hold the rope. If you will hold the rope for me. And that great illustration becomes a, a great picture for the, the dynamic between goers and senders, right? I mean, I, I would pray, and I have prayed that over time, even within our church, the Lord would raise up some who would go into ministry, go on to mission, the mission field, and that we could support them, and, uh, but also that we could support others who are already doing that work. And, and, and so there's this, and that we could be good senders, and that we could support those who are goers, and, and all those things. Of course, we want to think locally as well, but we also want to play our little bit in the Great Commission that we can play in holding the rope. What a great picture. I'll go down into the pit if you hold the rope and support me. So this is the supplication for servants. We want to pray that the Lord raises up those. You can start to see these timeless principles coming out of what Jesus is teaching his disciples here, even on the short-term mission trip. Notice third, the suffering of servants. The suffering of servants in verse three. He says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, this is nothing new. We've heard this. Jesus told this to his disciples in Luke 9. 
We won't spend much time here, but his statement reminds me of the scene in Jurassic Park where they, they feed a cow to one of the dinosaurs. They just put it in there and they just, and it's like, I'm sending God into the midst, you know, like sheep in the midst of wolves. Like, what an image in this little sheep there. And then there's all the wolves surrounding it. And that is a scary picture. He's preparing them for persecution, opposition, rejection. He'll do this elsewhere, John 16. Verse two, he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. First John three thirteen. do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. There will be opposition, ostracizing, odd looks, but we are invincible until God's purposes with us are finished. And so he, he gives the principle of the suffering of servants. I won't spend much time there because we've, we've looked at that some more. I just want to point it out to you. Notice, uh, fourth, I believe, the single-minded focus of servants. The single-minded focus of servants in verse four. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet one another, and greet no one, rather, on the road. Once again, we won't belabor this. This is very much reminiscent of what he said to the 12 in Luke 9. They are not to have any carry-on luggage. <laughs> there, there should be an urgency about their mission. And, and like I said when I taught on Luke 9, in Luke 22, Jesus will take away these restrictions. They can, they can take extra things with them. The times have changed. He's trying to teach them lessons right now. You could put it like this. For this missions trip, for this short-term missions trip, they have to fly Spirit Airlines, Right? But later, they can fly southwest and get two check bags for free, all right, <laughs> included. So they can take much more. Uh, so they can't bring anything extra, no extras. Just what you're wearing, and that's it. If you want to breathe extra oxygen on this flight, you got to pay a little extra, you know. Uh, so that's the idea here. They must be urgent. And that's what he says here, greet no one. No, he's not calling them to be rude, obnoxious. But he, it's the, the greetings then were much more drawn out, elaborate. You might get invited over to someone's house and maybe have to spend the night. And so there's just a lot extra with this greeting. And so he's saying, you can't get caught up with that. You have a single-minded mission right now for the short-term trip. He's, not, he's obviously saying, you could say hello, hello, how's it going? You know, shalom, you know, and keep going. But, but don't get stuck. Be focused on what you have to do in this short period of, of time. Uh, it's a good reminder for us. There's just myriads of ways we can become distracted. Um, of course, we can have hobbies and different things to do, but we ought not to let them just drive out of our, of our thinking the primary things that we're called to do, what God has us here for. Why didn't he just take us right to heaven after he saved us? Well, there's things he has us to do here, to be faithful here, to share Christ with others. And that's the message that then he's going to give them to bring. And this is our next point. Number five, the saving message of servants. The saving message of servants. Verses five and six. Look there, starting in verse five. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon you. But if not, it will return to you. Now peace, and it's like, you know, uh, in Hebrew, it would be like shalom, right? And so that's a, greeting today even, but, and it was then, uh, then as well. And so it's just a normal greeting, but here it's not just, they're just, they're, he's not just telling them to say, say hello, you know, say hi. That's not what's going on here. This piece is really about being rightly related to God. Uh, even more, it's the peace of God's coming kingdom that will bring 
shalom. It will bring wholeness uh, uh, to the whole creation. We might say it like this, that the peace that Jesus brings through his work will bring vertical peace and horizontal peace. It'll bring peace between God and man through the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation, but it'll also bring a transformation of creation as the curse on the creation is lifted so there'll be no more sickness, death, and pain and, and the, the corruption of the creation which groans until the return of Christ. And so this is that peace that they're offering. And this is the saving message. And so when they say peace, they're offering the message of reconciliation with God to these people. It becomes clear in verse 6 when he, he refers to a son of peace. A son of peace. This is someone who would be a son of, means like you're characterized by this quality. Remember Judas was called a son of perdition? Because that's what he's characterized by. Son of peace is one then who is characterized by peace. In other words, as they bring this message of how to have peace with God, the king, if someone's receptive to that, by right, trusting in that and believing, then they become a son of peace. But if they reject that message, the peace returns. In other words, they don't get to enjoy that peace. It returns to the disciples because they've rejected it. And they have no peace with God. Uh, they're really proclaiming what Paul would later call the message of reconciliation that we've been given in 2 Corinthians 5, where we go into the world and we say, God, be reconciled to God through Christ. The message of peace with God. Luke 2.14, this is relevant because it's within the book we're studying. This is in the birth narrative of Jesus. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is that peace. Paul will talk about peace with God in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that enmity is, is removed between us and God. And so true believers have peace with God. They are sons of peace. And this is the saving message people need to hear. We, we hear more about their message in verse 9. Look there. It says, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. We've talked many times about this unique season of, of um, revelation history where God is gifting people to have specific gifts of healing and to authenticate the message before we have the, the whole entirety of the New Testament. And so he's gifted these people to do that. And so they're to go and authenticate the message. And what, what they're also doing with this healing is not only showing compassion, but they're showing the, the previews of the kingdom conditions, right? This is what it will be like in the kingdom. This is what the horizontal peace looks like. Healing, and it's not just that they're doing healing because we'll learn later in uh, verse 17 that they were also casting out demons. And so it is, they're bringing conditions of the kingdom and they're saying, this is the peace that's being offered to you. It is coming, it's drawing so close to you. The kingdom is, is at hand. It's drawing near to you. Receive it, receive the king and you will enjoy these conditions in an ongoing way. And I think this is what they, they mean when they say that the kingdom has drawn near, it's come near in two senses. The king's presence, Jesus' presence indicates the nearness of the kingdom. When the king is present, the kingdom is, kingdom conditions are present. And the kingdom conditions indicate the nearness of the kingdom. Of course, we know as the time will go on, there's a rejection of Jesus. There's a whole, a, a, um, a broad rejection of Jesus by Israel. And so there is, the kingdom does not come in its fullness because they reject the king. This is their message, though. Peace with God through Jesus. 
Do you have peace with the king? Oh, what a, what a comfort to have peace, to just know. You know, things are going in your life, and you go, man, I have peace with God, though. I'm right with the king. This is the message we bring when we share the gospel. It's the only hope for sinners who have rebelled against the king, who have committed cosmic treason. And I would just suggest to you, when you think about ways to share the gospel, this is a really helpful way, I think, to bring the gospel to someone in a fresh way, to think about it in these kingdom terms. You think you could start, you know, God, man, Christ, response, right? Use those categories, but think in this kingdom idea. Jesus is the king. God is the king. So God is the creator of all things. He is the ruler, sovereign, the king over all things. And therefore, he owns you. He determines life for you and its purpose for you. His rights over you. And God is a good king. He is a wise king. He's a just king, which means he will punish all wrongdoing and evil. He's holy. He's set apart. And he is a glorious king that is satisfying and uh, is the very purpose of our existence to glorify this king, to, to make much of this king, to honor this king. And God, the king, created Adam, the first man, to be a little king to be a mini king, to rule the creation that he made on his behalf and rightly reflect his glory. But Adam rebelled against the king. He rebelled against God's rule over him. He wanted to determine his own way. He wanted to say, I'm king, and I get to determine right and wrong. And that cast the creation into a curse, and it separated every one of his descendants from God and led them to be, inherit the guilt of Adam as well as a sinful nature that is bent towards rebellion. And so each one of us are born wanting to be king. I want to be king. This is my little kingdom and everyone who comes into it, I'm going to either punish or praise if they serve me. And, and God, I, I, I want to make much of myself, not make much of you. And this is really at the heart of sin. It is self-sovereignty. It is wanting to rule yourself and be king over your domain and not submit to God's authority in whatever way that may manifest itself in your life, determining morality for yourself. And so we want to be king over our little kingdoms and we've daily rebelled against our creator. We're in a hopeless condition and we deserve justice from the king of kings. And yet God sent the ultimate king to the earth Truly God, truly man. And yet this king of kings did not come like we would expect a king to come. No, he came like a slave. He came like a pauper. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this king came to die as a substitute for hell-bound rebels who had sinned against the king. And he came as a substitute he died for those who rebelled against him and he rose again. He is the new Adam, the ultimate king who can bring a new creation. He's not only a king though, he's a prophet and he is the priest who not only offers himself as a sacrifice, but is the sacrifice and the one who brings the sacrifice. And so it is for you to repent of your rebellion and the ways it has shown itself in your life and it's for you to trust this king who deserves all worship. I mean, that's a great way to think about sharing the gospel. Think of Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. Submit yourself to this king. That's the message that we proclaim. That's the saving message that we give out. Sure, you can add more detail, but that's the structure of it. What a great message. So good.
This is the saving message of servants. Notice, I think sixth, the supply of servants, the supply of servants. Verse seven, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. So here's another short point because it's very similar to Luke 9. He brings a principle up that's in other places in scripture about how those who are gospel workers can find their support in the gospel. That those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 14. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 18, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Jesus is saying something very similar. But there's a balance here. Verse say, he says, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. He doesn't want them going from house to house to find a better deal. He wants gospel ministers to, to be content, to not give any appearance that they're just out for the money, <laughs> that, they're, that they're doing their work because they genuinely want to see people come to faith in Christ and, and so they're content with whatever conditions they have. So there's a balance here. While those who receive the message are to supply their needs, at the same time, they themselves as messengers are to remain content with whatever they receive. Right? So whatever they get, that's what they're to be content with. And so he gives them their supply. He supplies all that we need for the work that he calls us to do. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply, someone said. I don't know who. I <laughs> can't remember. Finally, we want to see our last point, number seven. Call this the sobriety of servants or maybe the seriousness of servants. 10 to the verse 16. But look at verses 10 and 11. It says, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. He's preparing them for the reality that they will be received by some, sons of peace, and rejected by others. And how are they to respond when they are rejected in this particular time and place in history? Well, they're to, to have a visual demonstration that would make sense to their hearers. This would be strange today. It wouldn't be really as understood. But Jews, as they traveled to a Gentile area or city, as they came back into a Jewish city, they would often uh, wipe the dust off their feet, kick the dust off of their feet as a visual just demonstration that they are leaving that area, coming in, back into a Jewish city, and uh, that those people are not part of the people of God, right? So if you're in a Jewish city and you they reject the message and you knock the dust off your feet, you wipe the dust off. What are you saying to this Jewish city that thinks they are part of the people of God? They're saying, you're not part of the people of God because of the response you had to the message. And so this is a visual way to say, your blood is on your own hands. It's not on our hands. We shared the gospel with you and you've chosen to reject it and you are not a pe part of the people of God. Also notice that the rejection of the message does not change its meaning or, uh, yeah, it doesn't change its meaning. He says in verse, um, uh, the, the kind of the middle of verse 11, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So we wipe off the dust of our feet because you reject it, but nevertheless, the same message, it doesn't change. So whether you believe it or not, it doesn't alter the message. It still remains true. But then you get into this this part here where Jesus interjects in verse 12 and they'll continue on 
where he, he shows the, the sobriety of gospel preaching. Verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. When, it, when someone fails to respond, it is appropriate for us to warn them of the danger of their rejection. And this can be done graciously and yet firmly. Now, there's, you don't have to do it the same way. I sometimes will say like, it's like, ah, oh, that's good for you. That's not really for me though. That's usually kind of what you hear. It's like, hey, uh, this is serious though. And I really hope you'll think about this more. Because if you really do reject the message of Christ, there's no other hope for you. That God's wrath will be what you have to bear yourself forever. Because God is a just God. So I hope you'll think about this more. And if you have more questions, please, I would love to talk to you about it. Right, you can do that. You've warned them. And yeah, you can do it in a gracious and yet firm way. And that's what they're doing with this visual demonstration. But then we do it because we understand the stakes here. Now, Jesus introduces something that is, it's just very interesting. The concept that there are varying degrees of judgment in hell. Not everyone gets the same punishment. How can anything be worse than hell? Well, apparently it can. Apparently there are degrees of judgment. And that's what Jesus is introducing to us here. He, he does it by introducing Sodom. And he says, it will be more bearable. So more bearable. There's a comparative, right? On that day, what day? He's talking about the judgment day. That great white throne judgment. When the king separates, well, when the king brings all those who are unbelievers up from the dead and he judges them fully and finally. But he says for Sodom, Sodom is proverbial for being a wicked city. Genesis 18, 20 tells us it was exceedingly sinful and God destroyed it. Yet what Jesus is saying is if you had the message of Christ and you saw the miracles of Christ and you rejected that, it's worse for you than it will be for Sodom. Whoa. I mean, they would no doubt believe that Sodom justly deserved what they got. And yet, he says, it's going to be worse for your rejection. All crimes in society are not punished the same way. We understand that. That's understandable. And that's what really Jesus is getting at. Notice what he does then in verses 13 to 16. He says, woe to you. That's a, a word of judgment. Woe. Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it'll be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. What is he saying? Well, you have six cities here. Three Gentile, three Jewish. You have Gentile cities of Sodom, of Tyre of Sidon. We know about Sodom in Genesis 19 and God destroys them for their wickedness. You, then you have Tyre and Sidon who Ezekiel and Isaiah speak against many occasions about judgment. They were uh, Phoenician seaport cities and they were very wicked. They were pagan, but they didn't have a gospel witness. They didn't have a witness from Israel. They didn't have miracles really being done among them. And, and so they were wicked. They will be judged. The prophets spoke about their judgment but then he lists three Jewish cities, uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and 
Capernaum. Now, we know less about Chorazin and Bethsaida, but we know Jesus did miracles and preached there. But we know a lot about Capernaum, and that's why he focuses on them, because that was like his home base for ministry. I mean, we spent a lot of time in, in, in uh, Capernaum, in Luke's gospel, where Jesus is doing tons of miracles there. He's preaching a ton there. He made it his base of operation. So he's saying, you guys got to see the most of my miracles, and you got to hear the most of the message. And yet, you guys think you're going to heaven? You're going to hell. That's what he's telling them because you rejected the message. And it's going to be worse for you than these Gentile cities that didn't get to see miracles, that didn't get to hear the message. They're still going to be judged, to be sure, but it's worse for you. And so here's the principle that Jesus is getting at. The more revelation from God a person has will determine the degree of their punishment in hell. In other words, more privileges rejected means greater judgment experienced. And the scary part about this all is really to bring it home, to bring it to our time. We have even more revelation than Capernaum had. We've got a whole Bible in multiple translations and commentaries and all kinds of sermons and access to Bible teaching. Our country, for us to reject, is even more, even worse. J.C. Rowell says, no sin makes less noise, but none so surely damns the soul as un." belief. And so this is like a big motivation Jesus gives to them uh, as they share the gospel that, whoa, the stakes are high here. There's another little fascinating thing we'll just point out. We don't have time to linger on it, but you notice how he says this? Jesus says, if the miracles had been done in them, they would have repented? Like, what is that? They would have repented. So if they got the same privilege as this town, he knows what would have happened. Now, this is amazing. You just get into like a little rabbit trail on God's knowledge, what it means for God to be omniscient. You think God knows everything that has ever happened. God knows everything that is presently happening. God knows everything that will happen in the future. And God apparently knows everything that could have happened. You know, that just explodes your brain because not only, and God is not like, ooh, let me call up the file in my, what happened in this year. No, he just knows it all the time in perfect knowledge. It's not like our knowledge. And he knows all the contingencies. So it's like, and sometimes we think about our lives like this. Like if I had, if I had done this, you think you regret something. You know, if I had gone this way instead, if I had done this decision, would my life have turned out differently? Oh, you bet it would have. Of course it would have, but it didn't because that wasn't God's ultimate plan. Now, you're responsible, but God is sovereign and he knew all the contingencies. He knew if you married this person instead of that person or went to this school instead of that school or took this career instead of that career, whatever, it would have, if you turned right instead of left, if you sped up at the yellow light instead of slowed down, whatever, he knew all those things and this is the plan that he has brought into, into being and is seeing through. And so what a thought just to meditate upon God's incredible knowledge. He knew what would have happened if the gospel had gone to these cities. They would have repented. But, and then you go, why didn't he send? You know, these are the things. But he has purposes. And we're going to see that more in the section on sovereignty. It just is fodder for worship. What a God. Well, Jesus finally closes out in verse 16 and essentially has this logical statement that the one who hears you hears me and the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So in other words, the messengers go out. If you reject their message, 
you're not just rejecting them, you're rejecting me. And if you reject me, you reject the Father who sent me. So this speaks to the exclusivity of the gospel, which is a great way to conclude a section on, you know, evangelism 101, you know, that Jesus is saying, listen, no other way will get you to the Father. You can't come through any other religion. It has to be through me. And the message that's proclaimed about me, only one way. What have we seen? Principles for gospel servants. The sending of servants, the supplication for servants, the suffering of servants, the single-minded focus of servants, the saving message of servants, the supply of servants, and the sobriety and seriousness of servants. Let me simply conclude with Psalm 2, the end of Psalm 2. As we herald the message, we have both a warning and a wooing aspect that we want to do. We want to show people that there is judgment if people don't repent, and yet, oh, there's such joy for those who do come to the Lord. Psalm 2, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son or do homage to the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And yet, blessed, happy are those, all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word to us. It's clarity. Thank you for the work you are doing to bring people into your kingdom through faith in Christ as the message goes out. Please help us to be faithful gospel witnesses, to play our part, whatever our giftings and circumstances that you've placed us in. Help us strive to become clearer in our communication of the gospel. And Lord, provide us contacts, Lord. We thank you, Lord, as we're kind of dipping into next week that you have written our names in the book of life. Lord, that we can rejoice that we know you as our king and we are rightly related to you that we know that you in your, what you could have done and we know what you did do, you brought us into the hearing of the gospel, you caused us to believe and here we sit today worshiping you and sitting in awe of your knowledge of all things and your knowledge of us, your saving knowledge of us and our knowledge of you. And Lord, we thank you. Give us encouragement as we go out this week in the truth of the gospel, whatever our burdens may be, may you sustain us by the knowledge that we are yours our names are written forever in your book. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond with... Uh